this is Ashley, and welcome back for another episode of Mentor Chat. This time, we'll be talking with Stephanie Romero from Awaken Pittsburgh. When talking about mental health, the topic of mindfulness comes up often. Listen in to this episode to hear from Stephanie about the impact being more mindful can have on our mental health and how Awaken Pittsburgh is working to create real change through mindfulness. Stephanie, welcome. Would you please do an official introduction, who you are, what you do? Um, We would love our listeners to, to learn more about you. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Michelle. So I am Stephanie Romero, and I am the founder and executive director of Awaken Pittsburgh. We are a tiny 501c3 nonprofit here local in the Pittsburgh area, and we provide mindfulness and meditation programming with the goal of increasing social and emotional regulation, mental health and well-being in a whole variety of populations. Um, I was hoping you could speak a little bit more about how you do that or like what that looks like. I know um, I looked on your website and your mission states that the organization like fosters well-being, empathy and compassion um, through teaching and encouraging mindfulness and meditation practices. And so I was hoping to learn more about what that looks like, how you do it and um, the impact that you've seen that have. Sure. So the kinds of things we offer are everything from drop-in meditation sessions. So people can come and just practice with us for an hour. And we do that three, four times a month, depending on the month. Um, So, and it's free donation-based. So anything that you'd like to offer. So we do offer just open meditation sessions. We also offer training courses And so the training courses are tailored to populations. We also offer just kind of open drop-in training courses. But for example, we could do um, school-based training for educators uh, and paraprofessional staff and even administrators. And what that looks like is a nine-week course, uh, usually an hour and a half sessions for nine sessions. And I say nine weeks, but it's nine sessions. And we can do that over nine weeks, we can do it over nine months, we can do it in three hour blocks, we have a variety of ways of delivering it, but it's nine one and a half hour sessions. And the kinds of things we cover there are, um, what does the stress response look like? How do we deal with our daily stressors and acute stressors? What does compassion fatigue and burnout look like? And how do we work with that? How do we regulate ourselves so that when something that triggers a difficult reaction in us happens in the classroom space, just using the example of an educator, what do we do to keep ourselves kind of calm, cool, and collected and respond from that higher self or that place of the best response we can offer? And part of that is generating compassion, sometimes for those most difficult students, right? The ones that provide us with the most challenges Um, and really the compassion and empathy generation is something that we do work on in that class. The other thing we look at is living into our intention, how we want to show up in our workspace, in our family space. How do we foster healthy relationships, set those healthy boundaries? Uh, being aware, which is a big component of mindfulness, is always that first step. And then what are those daily practices that support that in an ongoing way? Um, how do we deal with forgiveness? How do we deal with anger? How do we generate more joy in our lives? Um, Yeah, those are just kind of a sampling of the topics that we cover in that nine session program. 
So we do that kind of a program. We do little one-up presentations and support sessions for folks on a whole range of topics. Um, we also provide a kind of train the trainer program where we actually train educators or other caring professionals on how to bring the practices into the work they do to serve students or clients. Uh, we do a trauma-sensitive training, um, trauma-sensitive classroom training as well. And there's kind of a cutting edge of mindfulness research too that is um, super fascinating to me and like inspiring that when we practice certain types of mindfulness, we actually can reduce implicit bias. And so based on that body of research, we've designed a course that's called Mindful Connections for Bias Awareness. And so we developed that with some community partners that share the identities of the biases that that we explore in the course. Um, so that's another offering that we have. Um, so yeah, a variety of ways of approaching it, but different tool sets and different trainings, everything from, like I said, a one hour to, you know, up to a 12 session program that can work on how to be self-regulated, how to notice those, uh, how to bring those unconscious biases to our conscious mind and work with them. So we're not causing harm uh, in, in the work that we do when you know most of us really wanna help, but those unconscious things sometimes lead us to cause harm we're not realizing. I hope that answered your question, Ashley. I could keep talking about that one. <laughs> oh, it definitely does. Uh, thanks. And I know in more recent years, um, mental health has been like at more at the forefront of people's minds. People have been talking about it more and mindfulness is something that I've seen people talk about more and like practice more, but how did you come into this field or how did awaken Pittsburgh like come into being? Yeah. So I was a K to 12 educator. I always joke and say I spent 16 years in middle school as an adult (laughs) and um, was was teaching actually Spanish. And um, my certification is in ESL, Spanish and social studies. But most of the all of the years I spent in K to 12, I was teaching Spanish. I also taught um, at the University of Pittsburgh adults, linguistics and ESL. And so I had all this education background. And I had the great blessing of having a husband who's faculty at Pitt, and I had faculty benefits to attend uh, Pitt, not for free, but real close, you know, considering what tuition is anymore. And my husband really encouraged me to get my doctorate. He's like, you should go get your doctorate. You should really do that. And so while I was working full time, I plugged away for I won't tell you how many years at getting all those courses done. And um, in in you know, in my life, I was meditating and uh, bringing that into my life. It really gave me a lot of benefits, like more self-regulation. And at at certain point, I can't even like name to you what year this was, I realized that people were bringing meditation and mindfulness into classrooms. And so a lot of times we have things in our life, like our personal and our professional are really separate. And there was this aha moment where this personal thing of mine that was my meditation practice crossed over into my professional life because I started trying to bring it into my classroom. And and at the same time was working forever on this PhD. And so at a certain point I thought I was originally gonna write my dissertation on the really exciting topic of language policy and language teaching policy in the United States because No Child Left Behind really changed things in that field. 
And then I suddenly thought, well, the thing that's having the most impact in my classroom is bringing my mindfulness practice out to the students and, and working with them in a different way. So I went to my advisor, you, you know, you, you don't know my advisor, but she, she was not a, how do I want to say it? Like, uh, easy to convince person when you want to change your dissertation topic, right? <laughs> so I went to her and I was like, I'm going to change my topic because I'd already proposed the topic. And she was like, what? It did set me back about a year, year and a half because I had to start my lit review all over. But I ended up writing my dissertation on mindfulness and education. And I took a year sabbatical and I visited schools that were doing this K to 12 and districts, entire districts that were doing it. <clears throat> and I was like, "Woo, we don't have this in Pittsburgh, right? This was like 2013. We don't have this in Pittsburgh. And then I finished the doctorate and I was like, my original plan was to move into upper administration. You have a doctorate in education leadership. You know, you're going to lead a school district. You're going to do curriculum development and supervision, which is what I was trained to do. And I thought to myself, I can't do it in a district that is not embracing mindfulness. And I looked around at that moment and no one was really doing this fully in, in Western Pennsylvania. That has shifted, you know, fortunately to some degree. So I said to myself, well, what do I do? And so then, you know, one of my professors at one point said, well, how do you have the biggest impact, right? You have this degree now. How do you have the biggest impact knowing what you know? And my answer was, I start to get people to do it, right? And how do I do that? You offer it for free. How do you offer something for free? You, you start a nonprofit and you like grant seek and do fundraising so that people don't have the excuse that they don't have the money because it's all it's always time and money like when you offer something to someone right now i have a grant to offer programming for free to a certain population and do you have the time is always like how can we make the time for your staff to to take advantage of this but that that was how awaken pittsburgh was born um basically out of my own personal conviction that this is something that changes lives yeah and, and systems, you know, the potential for changing our school, school systems. So I'm thinking what you just shared, not only your personal experience and going to get your PhD and kind of the aha moment, um, but just what your organization does as a, as a whole with regard to mindfulness and meditation practices um, and how you support educators and caring adults. I'm thinking based on the conversation I'm having with educators and some of our mentoring program leaders that you should have a line outside the door mm -hmm. um, because this keeps coming up, you know, and we, we centered this episode or this season of the podcast around youth mental health, but I know, and Ash and I talked about this before we got, we talked about it a little bit the last season, it's hard to do that, which in your personal example, you just shared, if you're not modeling it. So here you you took a personal practice and you're like, wait, this is making a major difference and wanting to be able to extend that opportunity to others is like remarkable. Um, so I can't wait to the till this episode is out there so folks can take advantage, not that they're not now, but like there are resources available to support the work. This is not easy work. And there's no, we cannot support our young people with regard to their mental health and well-being if we don't know how to do it for ourselves. So um, 
and then ourself and then within larger systems, right? 100%. 100%. What yeah. you just said, Michelle, is like the key piece. So many times I've had conversations with educators and I mean, they don't say it in these words, but what the message that I'm receiving is, is we need to fix the kids and we don't need to fix the kids. We need to work on gaining as educators or mentors or caring professionals, gaining a skill set ourselves where the way we show up to our children and youth is supporting their self-show and emotional regulation because we are regulated. So we have these things called mirror neurons, right? And so when I, as the adult, am stressed out, right, not functioning optimally, overtired, burnt out, you know, fill in the blank, the kids unconsciously through their mirror neurons are going to pick up on that and reflect it back to us. You know, when bad things happen in the space, like in a classroom, I'll just give you an example. I had a student, two two kids, middle school, two kids that were on the middle school football team had had a fight the night before in the field. I didn't know this as the Spanish teacher. I turned to write something on the board. I hear a big noise. The one kid had taken the other kid and thrown him off his chair, pushed him to the ground, right? And you know, fortunately, no one got hurt, but everyone was like, oh, and now you have a choice in that moment of how you respond to that situation. Do you lose it? Do you start screaming? You know, what do you do? And, you know, after years of practice, I said, kid on the floor, are you OK? Like your first thing is the kid. OK, right. He's OK. He sits down and I was like, everybody, that was really upsetting. Let's all pause and just take a couple breaths. And, and I needed that. Like, I needed that moment just to calm before I decided what my next step was. But if you do that out loud, then the kids know, oh, she is acknowledging my feelings, that it was upsetting to watch. They all saw it, right? It was upsetting to see something bad happened in the room. I can validate that for everyone. And I can admit it as an adult that I need a moment to get it together. And that gives them a chance to take a moment. Right. And I probably make a better decision as the adult guiding that situation after I've kind of, you know, calmed it down, you know. Um, and, and so, yeah, like if we don't know that there's a potential to do that because we as adults have never seen it done, you know, and, and I'll just say most of us haven't had that example. Like the generation that has gone before us, they did the best they could. They didn't have that skill set in all cases. So we need to gain that skill set. You know, we really, really do. And kids can't learn it if we don't have it. Hi, I am Maggie from Big Brothers Big Sisters of Greater Pittsburgh. Established in 1965, Big Brothers Big Sisters of Greater Pittsburgh is the region's premier evidence-based youth mentoring program. BBBS PGH's mission is to create and support one-to-one mentoring relationships that ignite the power and promise of youth. We serve children between the ages of 6 and 13 years of age in Washington, Greene, and Allegheny counties. We have 200 kids in our waiting list. You must be 21 years of age, have a car, and pass a thorough background check. Check out BBS PGH for more. So that's a perfect setup then for my question, because I know sometimes it's hard. Like we talk about the importance of relationships and making sure young people feel seen, heard, and valued. And I never want it to come across as, We don't know that there's challenging behaviors, challenging personalities, and just to make it seem like, oh, well, if we all come smiling, like, 
young people will gravitate to you. That's just, it's, life's just not that mm-hmm. simple. And you've talked about it, like just even in that example, a challenging experience. Um, I think as adults, me as a mom, sometimes it's hard to relinquish that control. Like, oh, something happens. I have to react, right? Like what's it going to be? But you just shared in the realness of a situation, like one, are you okay Two, like, wow, that was difficult. And then you humanize yourself for young people you working with. That doesn't mean you lost control as a teacher. It was just like, whoa, let's validate that this was tough to take in here in that moment. Mm-hmm. So do you have advice or tips? And I know like you, you spend the bulk of your work doing this. If so you maybe have three tips or three pieces of, of advice for adults or educators and how they might um, support a young person if it, if they are having a challenging personality um, mm-hmm. with regard to whether it's their own mindfulness approaches or some yeah, other I, the training topics you share like that could support a caring adult in a in a challenging situation so they don't lose footing in that relationship if that makes sense. I love that question and I will just say every single one of the students that I thought were my worst students, like so difficult, right? Like I, I'll just tell you the story. There was this one young man. He was so rough. He would tell me regularly he hated my class. Like he was off task. He never did his fat. Like it was awful. And when you're in a smaller school, like you have these kids multiple years in a row. So, you know, I had had him one year. He failed the class. Here he was again the next year, back in my class, hating on my class. Um, and, you know, one day he asked me to go to the nurse and my internal voice was like, oh, thank God <laughs> he's leaving. He's going down the hall because he was so challenging and disruptive. And that later that day, um, the nurse called me and said, you know, I need to talk to you about so-and-so. And uh, she came to my room and that young man who was probably a sixth grade at the time, I had fixed fifth, sixth, seventh and eighth grade had taken a car lighter and burnt holes in his leg and was being sexually abused at home. Now, I just want to say, like, that's a horrific story. It's really extreme. But every single really difficult student that I have ever had, I eventually found out a story like that. Every single one of them. Those kids are misbehaving, acting up, crying out for help not because they are bad and hate you and want to take your class off track. And so if we can just reframe our thinking that that student at this moment or that, you know, child at that moment does not have a skill set to manage whatever is going on in their life and this is the best that they can do, it's probably some kind of negative attention seeking coming from something really difficult in their life. So if we could just, and it doesn't make it any less frustrating, it doesn't make it any like them any less responsible for their behavior, but it helps us understand that they're just having a difficulty showing up in the way we want them to show up. Now, that young man, after, you know, as I said, I had multiple years, he, he never passed Spanish. Like, I don't think he got more than a D in my class the three or four years that he was in my class. He came back and visited me from high school, not because he loved Spanish, but because I worked so hard to build relationship with him and listen to him and be with him as a human, you know? Now, you know, I, I, I'm okay with the fact that he was not interested in Spanish, but I was not okay with the fact that he didn't feel appreciated and seen in my space, you know? 
and valued, right? That, that he knew it didn't matter. I know you hate Spanish. I'm still here for you if you need me. And that kind of has to be the thing. Like if you have a kid, like, I don't want to do that. Okay. You don't want to do that. Like if there isn't really another option and, and the best thing we can do is provide kids with choices, right? If that's a possibility, but if there really is no other option, like how can I, how can I work with you to make this better for you? You know, I had a friend who was another middle school teacher. She was telling me this kid constantly telling her that her class was boring, right? Like, this is the last thing you want to hear as a teacher. You spend like eight hours prepping one lesson. It was so boring. You know, you're like, ah, right? And, and, and so like, she just finally asked the kid, what would you rather be doing to learn your social studies or whatever the class was? Like, what would make this interesting for you? I can't change the topic, right? And they had an honest conversation about what this kid really needed, you know? And so she was able to get some information when she could get past like how angry it made her because it makes you angry. That's we're human. You're not going to stop being human. It's going to hurt your feelings that a kid tells you that he hates your class, you know? Um, but like to really know if a kid is doing that, there is a reason and work to find out. So, so that was probably one of the biggest things that shifted for me after bringing mindfulness into the classroom. I'll just give you another quick advantage. Like I didn't do my homework. Okay. One response is zero for today. Right. Another response is what happened? What's going on? Right. And once you start asking that question, what's going on, like and really want to hear, you'll have the kid that tells you a little girl in seventh grade. My boyfriend broke up with me last night and I cried all night. Like for a seventh grade girl like that, her life ended. Right. She couldn't do her homework. So, okay, you got one more night to do it. You know, just care, just care about their lives. Right. I know even as an adult, sometimes we, I mean, we forget what it's like to be a kid and I have those same problems, like things as an adult, you know, like I, something happens to me and I stay up half a night crying and it's hard for me to like work the next day, but we don't often offer that same grace to kids in school or we minimize what they're going through because you're in seventh grade. You don't, it wasn't a real relationship, you know, that sort of thing, but it's very, what's happening to them is very real, no matter how small it may seem to us. And like, we need to treat it that way. That's um, right. And just That's right. for them, it's huge. Yeah. yeah. And just believing them and like validating them and trusting that they know their experience and they know what they're going through. And it's okay. Like for the teachers out there, if there are any teachers, it's okay to have a policy and say, I'm going to deduct 10% because this is late, but I still want you to do it. Like, it's okay to still have that consequence for that student. And you can be compassionate, right? You can be compassionate. Like, I'm not telling folks, oh, no, there should be no consequence for late homework or, you know, whatever. Like, please don't hear that. But what I am saying is it's possible to do both. It's possible to have those really high expectations for our kids and bring in compassion and empathy and then you'll have the kids like I, you know, few years before bringing mindfulness in the classroom, I don't think a student ever told me that their boyfriend broke up with me. They wouldn't have had that relationship with me, right? To feel comfortable telling me that that was the reason that they didn't do their homework because they wouldn't have felt that I would have understood. So, you know, that's the difference, I think, is being open and compassionate and bringing in the empathy allows kids to be their whole self in your spaces and you can be your whole self to them. 
At the the mentoring partnership, um, as Michelle mentioned, we've been having a lot of these conversations and we uh, recently had the like a whole series on um, youth mental health and supporting young people. Uh, one of the things that we've had the ongoing opportunity to provide is youth mental health first aid training. Um, and we use this to support caring adults, um, youth serving organizations, programs, mentors, and we think, um, I know Michelle is one of the facilitators on this, so she may be able to be able to speak a little bit more about it, but uh, it provides those adults with really tangible tools um, for how they can support young people and how to maybe identify certain signs um, or flags. And But it's also not about diagnosing a kid because we don't want to do that. We just want to like pay attention to what's happening and notice what's happening. Right. I went through the mental health first aid training and I'll just tell you, I love it. I really like kudos to you all for offering it. Um, the one thing I would say that it changed for me and I, I've been a foster mom and the thing that it changed for me was my ability to talk about it with the kids, right. To just bring it up and not feel afraid to like name things like how I'll just give you a couple of examples. How, how bad does it really feel today? You know, like on a scale of one to tell, how bad really is it? You know, really asking them to kind of tell me the depth of how, you know, like if a kid tells you I'm really sad, what exactly does that mean? Like, is it really depression? Is it, you know, can, can they, they may not have those words, but, you know, really trying to get a deeper feeling, like not being afraid to ask the question. We had a youth that was with us that was suicidal and if I hadn't had that training, I probably wouldn't have been ask, able to ask the right questions like, do you have a plan? Are you thinking of doing this today? You know, like really specifically, like, is this really a thing or is it just, you know, I don't know what someone's saying that they feel like they want to die could, you know, like drama or something that you might think it is like to really know how to ask the right questions. I think as a person who is in a kind of um, mandatory reporter situation or, or just a caring an adult to feel empowered to have a vocabulary and understand what's appropriate and not appropriate to talk about feels important because, you know, I, I would never want to talk about suicide with someone, you know, that, that to me, it, it feels like such a taboo topic in our culture prior to taking that training. Like I wouldn't have known that it was okay to just ask those questions. So I, I think that's part of the most important learnings for me is the permission to just leave that stigma aside and just talk to them frankly and openly about what they're feeling and experiencing and, and, and what they're thinking of doing. In that same vein, would you say then like the work that you do, because I try to not not to to limit its impact, but kind of compartmentalize things for for my own benefit. Like the work that you do sounds to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, like that preventive. When you think about mental health and well being, you think about mindfulness practices, and like that's those are preventative things. Those are things we could all be doing to help um, help better ensure our health and well being. It doesn't mean that we're always going to have good days. Like Ashley just talked about, young people, adults alike, do not have. <laughs> 
we're not on 100% all the time. So then when when we deliver trainings like youth and mental youth mental health and first date, these are tools knowing that okay, someone might not have a, a great day. How do we as caring adults specifically working with young people and honestly, if we take a step back just working with each other, other people recognize bad days for what they are to then make kind of take back to some of those preventative approaches like mindfulness, et cetera. Um, would you say your work is like along those preventative um, mechanisms, but also are strategies to help ongoing? We talk about self-help and other support strategies when we talk about youth mental health first aid. That's one of the um like the steps in the action plan, if you will, would you look at like your work like that again, not trying to put it in a box, but just to, to make it make a little more sense for, for me, for the listeners or kind of what that continuum looks like. Yeah. So the, it's a great question and it's yes and no. Um, I think that having a regular mindfulness practice is often, um, like that rock that can hold you through a really difficult period. But most people um, seek out practices like mindfulness in the middle of crises. And so they're turning to this to get relief for something that's already happening. Um, and, I, and we find that to be true as well. Um, and so, you know, there's a large body of research on what we do. And I'll just quote a couple of examples. In our own research on our programming, we see people coming in with really high levels of burnout, compassion, fatigue, stress, et cetera. And we always uh, see, and, and I'm talking about like the whole group mean, the average for our group, it always goes in the right direction. Like we always reduce stress. We always reduce, for, for those that complete, like if you're not going to complete the class, you're not going to see a reduction, <laughs> clearly. But for those that complete and do the pre-post survey, we see a reduction in stress. We, do, we see a reduction in burnout and compassion fatigue, Right. We just finished the meta-analysis of all, since we started in 2016, all of the data through um, basically the first of the year. And every single measure is statistically significant. So everything that we're doing, we're finding statistically, when, when we get enough people in the group, we're, we're shifting it, right? So we see increases in mindfulness, decreases in burnout, compassion fatigue, and um, an increase in what we would call like quality of life, right? And so, so that that is preventative, but it's also it's also fixing something, right? It's also fixing something. Recently, in the last two years, we've been working with particular communities or groups that have extremely high level of primary trauma. So most educators have secondary trauma because your kids will tell you something that happened to them and then you're you get traumatized hearing about their trauma so that's secondary trauma right so a lot of times educators develop secondary trauma um because of the trauma of their students and or you know therapists often you know other other professionals can experience this as well not just educators but we are we've been working in communities that have a lot of primary trauma like a community that has a lot of direct violence or an occupation like a first responder or a 911 call responder that has like they're in the trauma with these people right they're showing up in the, and they're being traumatized so we we really felt like our program alone is not enough and so what we've been doing is collaborating with a therapeutic organization to bring in therapists to do touch points with our participants to really provide that extra support and make sure folks um, 
you know, getting still and noticing what's happening through meditation, if you have a lot of trauma, that trauma is going to surface and you need someone one-on-one to start to work with you on that. So I don't, I'm saying that to like caution that yes, mindfulness can help support with different kinds of mental health issues, but it does not replace a one-on-one therapeutic intervention. Thank you for that. Sometimes I think that like implicitly stated does is helpful. Um, So thank you for that. So I'm going to shift a little bit of a question just from some of the challenges that we've seen um, specifically regarding like cultural language competency and how that could be a barrier for supporting youth and families. So as you share um, your program offerings, um, I was curious, like we've been, we've been trying to like first step is doing a lot of work in translating materials and looking at how we offer, begin to offer trainings in different languages Um, again, but that's been our challenge. So back to thinking about your work, how important have you found it to be specifically for you and your work? And then do you have any advice um, or tips for adults Um, how they can bridge those barriers and still make meaningful connections and support young people and their families. Yeah, so we have worked with um, different communities of different languages and cultural backgrounds. Um, And usually, so I am a Spanish speaker, but not because I'm Latina, because I grew up in a bilingual Spanish speaking community and my ethnic heritage is Italian and I speak Italian. So when I kind of grew up in a Spanish speaking environment with Italian, I was able to learn Spanish really well. I don't have an American accent, for example, but it is not my native language and I am not a Latina. So um, when I delivered, for example, a program for Spanish speakers, I had a native Spanish speaker with me kind of, and she was not trained in my program, but she kind of co-facilitated. And then, you know, Spanish is a difficult thing because I have a particular Uh, type of Spanish that I speak um, that, for example, someone from Guatemala's Spanish would be very different than my Spanish. So it would be like if you and I were teaching a group from Australia, there would be certain words that we would use that they would be like, what are you saying? You know what I mean? That that just a different different dialect. So she was from Central America and a lot of the folks, uh, it was a group of young people. A lot of them were from Central America. And so it was a really good fit. The same thing with... um, Nepali speaking Bhutanese community. I had a person from their community that co-facilitated with me and did translation. I was presenting in English. She did translation as needed. Um, so it's really important to have someone there that can translate you. So it it's not even just the language, right? Because like I speak Spanish fluently, but it's like the particulars of their culture that you may not get. And when I was working with a primarily African-American group of youth, and I guess this is a podcast where people can't see me, but I am a white woman. I just said I was Italian, so that might have given it away. Most Not all, but most Italians are more fair-skinned. Um, but I had an African-American male. They were mostly African-American male youth. I had an African-American male co-facilitating with me because it was not culturally appropriate for me to be the only one in front of that group. They, they, you know, people need someone that really identifies with them. Now, in, in all of these cases, that other person didn't have the content knowledge of my program, but they were able to, in moments where they saw a disconnect, translate what I was saying into words that these other folks could understand or field questions 
you know, or anticipate questions, I guess is a better way to say it, that I wouldn't even have imagined, you know, because I, I'm not in their culture. So it's hard for me to understand that. And so it's important to just have that person with you um, that, you know, we, we try to honor their time by paying them as well, you know, and, and really just have them there working with you. And if it's possible to like meet for a half an hour ahead, was the Spanish speaker did with me, we met, we would go over the content and, um, you know, that way she would feel confident, like where she wanted to chime in or anything like that. Or she would give me feedback, you know, a day or two before, if I wanted to change something like, no, that video is not going to land with them. And this is why. So anything you can do like that to have someone that really is part of that community working alongside you, um, kind of coaching you is, is super duper helpful. And then showing up to the actual time of and being there alongside you. I know one of those things that we try to practice and just even hearing you share is thinking about ways we can do more of that is um, like that team approach to some of our trainings, being intentional about representation, et cetera. But I know there's room for us to um, with regard to growth there, but knowing that it was a barrier for us, I would just <laughs> figure well, and ask I, I you what you're seeing. You like, yeah. Like a, and a good thing that comes out of that is like both the, um, the gentleman who helped me with the youth and the Spanish teacher ended up wanting to be trained in my curriculum and deliver it themselves in their own community, which is what you want, right? You want those folks to feel ownership and get trained in it and then be the ones delivering it. Like I shouldn't really be there. It should be someone from their community doing that work. And so that's the beauty of it is if you, if you have some co-facilitators that come along for the ride, just to be there with you, you know, few times you do that, you will find one that just loves what you're doing, see it changing people's lives and be like, I want to learn how to do that. And so, you know, we wrote a grant and got them trained. Before we kind of like wrap up our uh, conversation, I had like one last question. Um, I know we mentioned the um, Awaken Pittsburgh mission earlier on in the episode. And to kind of close us out, I wanted to bring up uh the vision that you all have like published. And um, it says, Awaken Pittsburgh's mission is an equitable and just society where diverse peoples live in harmony with each other and their environments. I was hoping you could expand on that, why that's your organizational vision um, and kind of like what that society looks like to you and what makes you hopeful that we'll get there. Um, it's so, a big question. I know. Yeah, it is. It is a big question, and I love our vision statement. We um, we actually updated our mission and our vision this year as part of our strategic planning, and so I'm like, it's taken me back to that board conversation where we actually did the visioning, you know. And <clears throat> I guess the bottom line for me is that Awaken Pittsburgh really believes that when we help support individuals be at peace with themselves and other people, that that's going to start to trickle out. And just think of um, an institution. If the majority of, a, of people in an institution are at peace with themselves and their coworkers and with the people that they're serving in that institution, right? If the administration in that institution tries to do something that doesn't feel right to them, they're going to be like, no, you know, that's not something we can do here. There'll be enough critical mass of people that disagree with it, that they're going to stop that from happening, right? They're not going to implement that policy, for example. 
And so I, I imagine a world where, you know, I don't think at this moment in time, I can change the way politics is going in Washington, D.C., right? Maybe not even in our local government so much, right? But I know if we get a critical mass of people in Pittsburgh that feel like they're completely self-regulated and they're not flying off the handle, <laughs> just, you know, driving the other day, this guy was flipping the bird and honking his horn at this poor elderly person as they passed them, right? Well, we don't have that kind of stuff happening because they're giving them some grace. Like, you know, grandma's doing her best right now or whatever. It's it's okay that you're 30 seconds later in your drive today, you know, that, that we are all self-regulated enough that we're able to hold space of compassion for each other and that that starts trickling out into our institutions and into our relationship with our earth, you know, where we where we are not using our resources in a way that is exploitative and using other humans in a way that is exploitative Be- because we have that compassion and because we know the value of each other in the world, you know, so that's really what it is. But when I'm when I am too wounded and when my needs are too great as an individual, there's no way I can live in that space, right? There, there's no way I can. And so we just got to acknowledge that unless we are all on the path of healing ourselves and others, the world that we wish was here isn't going to come, you know? And so I think that's where that vision comes from is we, we, we dream this vision of all harmony and peace, but it's not going to happen until we live that mission and really start to bring practices and skills to people for healing. So I would say, because I think our listeners are going to want to know, as we all continue our own healing journeys, right, and to be better for ourselves and each other, are there any resources, and we can add them to the show notes uh, for people, but if, if like one of your favorite top resources or you're like to, to explore your own healing journey or to begin self-regulation um, or to start a mindfulness practice that you have like some gems of resources that you want to share for listeners as things that they can kind of get started with or, or look into further. We would love for you to share now and then we can also include some in the show notes. Well, I'll just say to plug Awaken, on our website, we have a video link and we have, I don't know how many videos of practices on the website. So if you want to try like a 10 minute practice or five minute practice, they're up there. You can just go on and play with those. Um, And I did mention like for free, we do hybrid. You can come in person. You can join by Zoom, uh, open meditations. So like we really want to be the local resource that people go to if they want to learn about mindfulness and meditation. So we have all that. If you want to know like my favorite, not Awaken, because <laughs> I'll say Awaken's my favorite. <laughs> um, if you want to know my favorite, not Awaken resource, I think um, the Center for Healthy Minds at the University of Wisconsin is doing amazing research-based work. Uh, if you wanted to get an app, their app is for free and it's fantastic. I've downloaded it and tried it for a few weeks myself. Um, that would be the one that I would recommend. Like, you don't need to pay. <laughs> if you want an app, try theirs. Um, theirs is for free. And they have tons of 
supportive articles. And if you're a geek, you can read the research and, you know, all of that. So I would say Center for Healthy Minds out of um, University of Wisconsin is my favorite. The one that I like, if I have a question like, hey, what's the research say about blah, blah, blah in my field? I go to them. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. I think this conversation for me has been refreshing, um, just in the sense that I mentioned Ashley and I kind of like, and I don't even think it was purposeful, Ashley, but like in our last season of Mentor Chat, just started to ask people like, how are you carving out time for yourself? And I think in in going into this season and having this conversation with you, really, to me, that's my big takeaway is again to reiterate, especially with regard to our work in, in providing mentorship opportunities for young people and increasing the quality and quantity of mentoring um, for, for that population specifically, that without doing our own work, mm-hmm. our own um, healing work, our own self-regulation work and, and putting um, wellness practices into place. It's, it's really hard. Like you said, when you, when you, when you show up having a bad day or you can't be compassionate or empathetic because of things that you might be grappling with, it's harder to then that healing to kind of rub off on other people, right? If we can't do that. So thank you for this conversation. Thank you for your, your work. Um, I'm so glad your personal journey led you to this work. Um, I think it's going to be phenomenal changing for for educators and caring adults alike in putting this into their daily practices and working with young people. So thank you so much for your time today and the work that you do. Thanks for having me. Stay inspired. Stay inspired. Stay inspired. As we discussed in our conversation with Stephanie Romero, self-care and mindfulness is a process and takes time. It's something that looks different for everyone. In this episode, Stay Inspired, we thought we'd take a moment to do a common mindfulness practice together, guided meditation. Join us for this breath-counting meditation from Stephanie Romero and Awaken Pittsburgh. Hi, my name is Stephanie Mayetta Romero, and I'm the executive director of Awaken Pittsburgh. Today, we're going to do a practice called breath counting. It's another practice to help self-regulate, and it's pretty simple. You just have a complete inhale and exhale cycle, and you count that as one. Then the next one, inhale, exhale cycle, two. So we'll just do that together. So to get started, we always check in with our posture. So you want to take whatever feels like a dignified posture for you. It could be seated. It could be standing. One that really helps you just kind of feel your presence grounded in the moment. And then I always take a quick moment just to check in with myself. How am I feeling right now? Noticing any sensations in the body or thoughts or emotions that are present. And we don't necessarily have to try to change or fix anything. We just notice what's happening with us right now. And then as you're ready, bringing your attention to the feeling of the body breathing and just notice where you feel that. Do you feel it in your nose, in your chest, the rise and fall of the belly, back of the throat? Wherever you notice your breathing is fine. And if it's hard to notice your breathing, it's okay to take a couple of deeper breaths just to locate it. Get in tune with that breathing, feeling your inhale, feeling your exhale. And then when you're ready, coming back to the natural breath. 
And for this practice, you can have your eyes open or closed. Either is fine. We kind of have a downward gaze, not really looking at anything in particular if the eyes are open. And then we simply begin to count the breath. So inhale and exhale cycle one. And whatever number you get to. And if you find that your mind wanders, simply come back to number one. So if you get to eight, you forget about counting. It's all right. As soon as you remember, you get back to one again. And we'll do this practice for about three minutes. And then at the end, I will ring a chime to bring us back together. enjoy that practice a lot. It really helps me settle my mind. So whenever I'm feeling distractible or lack focus, doing that for a couple of minutes always really just kind of settles my mind. So hopefully the folks that are watching this find that with that experience as well.
Mentor Chat is written and hosted by Michelle Thomas and Ashley Wineland with the mentoring partnership of Southwestern Pennsylvania. It is produced by Pretty Easy Podcasts. Our music is Cheery Monday by Kevin MacLeod. Special thank yous to Kristen Allen and the mentoring partnership team. Thank you to our guests. For more information about us, mentoring, and this episode's topics, take a look at the show notes and visit the Mentoring Partnerships website at www.mentoringpittsburgh.org. Be sure to like and subscribe to Mentor Chat wherever you get your podcasts.